I'm Kimberly C. Palm. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. First of all, thank you so much for showing up and being with me here today. It, you're just a lovely person. So, Claire, I am so happy after so many times having this moment with you um, and learning more about you. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, well, right. well what's interesting is that we have a little bit of things in common. Now, I am not a lay Buddhist chaplain by any means, but I am a social worker, and I got into that because I thought it was social slash work. Now I know that that's not what it's about, but I am also really looking at moving forward with my education under social work because it makes me a better human being. But what brought you to social work as well as you're a chaplain, a Buddhist, a lay Buddhist chaplain? Pray for me, by the way. I think um, I think I've always had a desire to be of service, and um, the 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 social work degree gave me immediate access to direct care um, in the shortest amount of time. And I've wanted my work to have meaning, and I think there was a certain point in my work that I wanted to be able to infuse it with something more than clinical training, and be able to lift up suffering into a larger meaning. Um, and Buddhist chaplaincy um, offered me the opportunity to start to learn how to sit with what is without reacting, without grasping, without pushing away, but to stay intimate with what is happening. And it really helped me strengthen my capacity to sit with people who were suffering. And that happened because I could sit with my own suffering and as a result, I could extend that to others. So I liked the way it allowed me to do my social work um, through that lens of being of practicing Buddhism. I love that explanation. Just like I, I study a lot of a lot of Taoism and Buddhism. And as a Christian, I feel like it brings me closer to the foot of the cross. And, and it makes it widens my it widens my mind to be very compassionate and accepting to all spiritualities. Yeah, yeah, because really the center of all spiritual practices and religious traditions is just love. We just have different roots in. I totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. Yeah. So you have been an oncology social worker, you, which yes. is, I believe, it must have been the most hardest work to choose from. Or, I mean... You, how was that? Um, you know, my whole life I've been told, oh, you're so intense. Or <laughs> you know, I'm in my family, I'm known as the probe. Oh, not the pro probe. And um, I finally found an area of work where I my intensity and my ability to be with suffering was welcome and actually a prerequisite to doing the work, and where people welcomed the bigger questions. Um, 
so I, to me, it's, it's perfect. There's a giving and a receiving that, and then exchanges on the same moment. Um, I'm always grateful people show up for the work I have to offer and they're grateful for what I have to offer. So it's giving and receiving become the same. And that's, that's really special to me. That's really special. Now, being a social work oncologist, I mean, ha, I'm sure you've learned many life lessons through your patients that you've served. What, what kind of life lessons stand out to you throughout your years in oncology? I watch people go from test to test, and I watch how they have to strengthen their capacity to be patient. That's one thing. I've also learned the importance of seizing the moment that um, our lives change in a millisecond. And um, I've also learned that from my own close encounter with death when I um, was diagnosed with having multiple pulmonary emboli and I came right up to the edge. And I've also, I think, learned to be compa- more compassionate um, because each person travels this journey in their own way, as well as their own people travel their grief journey in their own way and just extending acceptance and compassion for whatever the face of that journey looks like. So I would say those are three of the things that I've learned. You know, as most people who work in oncology and hospice, they kind of, when you, people ask you what you do, they kind of lower their shoulders like, Oh, but, but to me, I really felt like I received so much more than I ever gave. Do you feel the same? Yeah. You know, um, I love being with people at the edge of life and death because um, people who were living with a life-threatening illness know what's essential. There's no bull involved. There's no exchange of uh, just niceties for the sake of it. So there's, there's some way they know about what's important and about how important it is to seize the moment and seize whatever meaning we can take from the moment. It's almost like they take off the armor. They don't have to participate yeah, but, in oh, bullshit that's anymore. Right. That's right. The doors of their heart open up. When, when death is on the horizon, it's life-changing. Mm. It's really life-changing. Now, you're also the co-founder of Facing Cancer Together. What yes. motivated you to create such a program? Um, in part because I wanted to be with people at this juncture and we wanted to provide free, find a way to provide free services for people, support services. You know, we founded this organization probably 12 years ago, but it spun off of another organization, which was a national organization called the Wellness Community. And our particular um, organization. It was we were part of like twenty um, organizations around the country, and ours particularly fell under poor leadership or irresponsible leadership, and we ended up going bankrupt. And so from that, we spun off to facing cancer together. In p- large part, we loved working with the people we wa- we were had been working with, and we all donated eighteen months of our time to work for nothing to get facing cancer together started. And then we reached a point where we had enough money to pay ourselves. So it, it's more of the same of, of just being with people at very critical points in their life and finding a way to help them end their life or enhance their life in ways that they want. But, you know, it all starts with, I don't think there's a heart stronger than the heart of a volunteer. That's how hospice started. That's how facing cancer started. It's people that have the passion 
that lay it on the line and then one day hope that maybe, maybe, maybe I will get paid that really make the mission over profit so, so much more important. Um, you, you're changing how people even live by, by this organization and what it took to get something like this off, uh, the, the ground well, is amazing. I think we change how people live and die. Yeah. I think both. Absolutely. Actually. You know, you know, tell us how, you know, we individuals, and I have to include myself, we, because I'm a student and I know and been in this field, but when someone like my father or someone else is diagnosed with cancer, it's like, I want, I hear, oh, how's the battle going? How's the fight going? And I, for some reason, I'm like, uh, battle. Um, that seems so not the language I'm looking for. How can we change that? Because my father's living with cancer, not fighting it. He didn't, he didn't pick cancer to pick a fight with. He, he happened to get it. And now he's trying to live and face cancer the best he can as he thinks of his quality on this journey. And so I just want us to change how we talk about it. You know, it, it's so interesting that you say this. Um, I think everyone speaks about cancer with their own language. But when I'm working with people, one of the things that I try and ask them over and over is to reframe from the fighting language to saying, what is it this cancer is asking of you that you need to strengthen in yourself to live with it? And the last chapter in my new book, Opening to Grief, is called Welcoming the Life That's Yours. And so what do we mean by welcoming? It means how do we accept what we've been given? How do we work with what we've been given? How do we allow what we've been given to open our hearts, whether we like it or not? And in many cases, we don't like what we've been given, but we don't have a choice. It's sort of a little bit like the serenity prayer, mm. which uh, something about give me the wisdom to, well, I'm, actually, I'm not very coherent. I, I know it, but I can't. Yeah, pull it it's up like right give me the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, yeah, I, between, I I hear you, but I don't think I could quote it. <laughs> between what I can change and what I can't change, right? Something and the wisdom to know the difference. See, together we make one. Yeah. So when you have cancer, you it, there's no you have it, and there's no way for it to be different. There's a there's a, an expression. Um, in the field, what we resist will persist. So the, the question is, how can we not tighten against it, but open to it and see what we can learn from this difficult, difficult situation we're in? You know, you mentioned your new book, Opening to Grief. Um, before I want to talk specifically about that one, this is your second book, Opening to Grief. But you have yes. a first book, Lasting Words. Talk to me a little bit about what was your goals and objectives with writing lasting words, and how did that open the door to opening to grief? That's an interesting question. Lasting words was my thesis during my Buddhist chaplaincy, and my teacher, Joan Halifax, said this should be a book. <gasps> and so at that point, I took it to a publisher in, in a completed form who took it just about completely as it was. Um, so I was I was concentrating on an end contemplative practices for end of life, and my book came out of that. And what I what I did was I researched. Uh, I, I did two things. I researched common issues that come up for people at the end of life, and I also researched common concerns people have. 
And so each chapter is devoted to a, a concern that most people have. It's, so the first one is like reviewing your life. Another one is uh, finding forgiveness. Uh, another one is expressing gratitude. Um, and it goes on, but passing along wisdom. And most people, when they get a diagnosis that they feel might be life-threatening, they begin to wonder, you know, what are people going to remember me for? Mm. What difference has my life met, made? Where do I feel a, a kinship of a deep kinship of belonging? To whom that I love do I want to leave blessings? And so the book came out of those needs and wishes that I hear a lot from people I work with. The wish to know that their life made a difference is really important. So in lasting words, there's a variety of exercises that people can do to create quote-unquote, lasting words as a form of legacy to pass on to their loved ones. And in my bereavement groups, people who are left things in writing are the envy of everybody else in the group who has nothing in writing from their loved one. There's something about the handwriting. And we're so quick to text and tweet and email, but our handwriting is very personal Mm -hmm. and more intimate. And we really need to pay attention to that and be more conscious about getting things in writing if we're sick to people we love. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what what's with the title Opening to Grief? I love that title, by the way. Uh, opening to Grief is an invitation. Um, you know, as I said before, a lot of, first of all, I think COVID has opened up one of the one of the few good things about COVID is that it has opened the word grief up to the culture. So the culture is now more accepting of grief. We read about it in the New York Times. We read about it in the Atlantic. And we're slowly learning more and more about the nuances of grief. And so opening to grief, the title is an invitation to be with your grief and to let your grief open your heart. We're all grieving. The whole world is grieving. And as I said, what we resist will persist. So allowing room and time for our grief. And each chapter is kind of a way to hold grief, a resource. But letting it open our mind, our our heart to ourselves also allows us to open our hearts to others. And we will connect with others more deeply if we can open to our own grief. I love that. Absolutely love that. So what what do you hope? Do you hope the book helps people understand not to numb out to grief, but to really lean into it? I I hope the group grief, the book normalizes the whole range of feelings that people have. I hope it helps people identify ways they're grieving that they may not have a clue. For instance, anger, irritation, irritability, loneliness, gratitude. Those are all expressions of grief. Grief is not just sorrow and sadness. It has many, many faces. And I want people to know that however they're grieving is the right way for them to grieve and to feel most of all that they're not alone, that the book I hope is a companion. Most of the endorsers wrote something about the book as a companion. And my co-author and I were so pleased because we wanted people to feel less alone 
and, and that they were part of a larger community in this world of people who all suffer in the same way. Now, where do people find this new book? Everywhere. Oh, Amazon. yay. Amazon. Uh, well, no, I, 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 I always say to people, review the book on Amazon, but buy it locally. Thank because you. Our, our small little bookstores are really in, in, at risk for going under, and we need to keep them. We so need to keep them. We need to go be able to hold a book and browse and see whether we want to buy it. So you can order it. It should be available at any bookstore by order. You know, I double that. Um, I only did book signings at independent bookstores across the United States because independent bookstores just saved my life when I was a youngster. And, you know, it's those people. So yes, I definitely am going to go on Amazon and review the book, but I, I will call my local Wilmington, North Carolina independent bookstore and get them to order it for me um, because it is important, especially during the these times. So, yes. so, so what's crazy is not only have, you know, you're co-founder of Facing Cancer, you're writing books, but you still maintain a private practice in Brookline, Massachusetts. You do, and you offer like workshops and one-on-one counseling. I mean, how are you doing all of this? It's, it's fine. Uh, I, 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 you know, what you love, you do. All right. You know, I think um, you were talking about being passionate before. And one of the things, the word passion has as the derivation, the word suffering. And we become passionate about things that we have suffered, that we don't want others to suffer. And I think um, when I was younger, I had a mother who had such a painful history, she could never talk about her life. And when she died, I realized I knew little or nothing Mm. about her by her own, her own wanting. And it's been a source of pain to me since she isn't here. And so I want people to feel that their children, whether they think their children now or not, that when people die, there's an access point to wanting to know people that often isn't there when we're alive. I think when we're alive, we tend to push off of our parents. We want to have a different life. Take for granted certain life. things that didn't... take for granted things. And I, I, I just want people to put value onto their life enough to pass on what's essential to them, to those they love. I love that. Now, how can people find you? Uh, well, you can go to my website, openingtogrief.com, and uh, there's an email access, or you can email me directly at Willis at gmail.com. I tell you, tell you I, I can't express how fortunate I feel to uh, have been talking to you today. You are a fire starter for sure. And, and going into that change maker, you're just on fire. You just want to help people. And I I can feel your energy and what it does coming across. And I, I can't wait to dive into your, your new book opening to grief and, and Claire, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule to show them. Yeah. To show them, to to have a conversation. Thanks a lot for having me. This was fun. I love talking about this stuff. I love it too. And look, (laughs) if there's anything that I can do to support uh, your work and on a social media level, please don't hesitate to ask. All of that is great. After you finish reading it and you feel it's a value, promote it. That's, you know, that's the only way we can do it because there's no live anything now. No. Which is so disappointing. Well, I I hope one day... Um, what I'm coming to realize that not even the, these platforms that are so 
really important right now, such as Zoom and other things that we use. They are essential, but I know that it will not take away from the face-to-face because I'm still so desperate for it. Yeah, and we all are. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thank you so much for your work and your impact. Thank you. Good luck on your journey. Thank you so much. And if there's any way I could be of support, don't hesitate to call. I love it, Claire. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.